Well, as most of you know, I think, if you've been uh, with us over the last few weeks, we're working through the Gospel of Mark at the moment, uh, and we're looking at the life of Jesus, this man. Uh, and Mark really is like a master painter. He's carefully adding the right hues and tones as he paints this portrait of Jesus, and he's revealing a little bit more every chapter of what he's like and how we should be responding to him. And we saw, Joan just read it to us, this story that we're looking at today of these two different miracles with two very different types of people. And really, Mark seems to be, I think, posing this question It's kind of underneath the surface that I want us to think about, and it's this. Could this man, who really all we know at this point is a man, be different? Could he be different? So I want you to bear that question in mind as we dive in and we start to look at this person, Jesus, and the kind of things he does in this story. So keep your Bibles open. We're we're going from verse 21. Uh, And we see, first of all, that Jesus and his disciples uh, have just crossed back over the Sea of Galilee, where a crowd has gathered, uh, and into the middle of this crowd uh, runs a man named Jairus. We're on the story here, by the way. (laughs) Uh, And we're told that he's a synagogue leader. So he's a man of social prestige uh, and presumably a degree of wealth. So what he does next in running up to Jesus in verse 22 and falling in the dust at his feet is surprising and shocking. Jairus explains this breach of social etiquette. His daughter is dying. And he earnestly pleads for Jesus to come and heal her. Any of us, I think, that are not parents, and that includes myself, and who have not experienced in any form the pain of a parent's love for a suffering child, it's hard to understand Jairus's grief here. This is a gut-wrenching turmoil, an anguish, and a rule-breaking desperation that pulls him to his knees before Jesus. And his heart must surely have leapt with hope, as Jesus immediately follows in verse 24. So Jesus went with him. But the narrative is immediately interrupted by the appearance of this woman whom we're told has been the subject, has been subject to bleeding for 12 years. Like Jairus, this woman seems to be very clearly a woman of desperation. She's suffered for a long time. And Mark spells it out for us in verse 26. Just look with me. It's this great little extra detail. She's suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors, had spent all her money, and yet they'd only made the problem worse. This is someone who seems to be at rock bottom. But her suffering is not just limited to physical suffering either. Jewish law teaches that someone subject to prolonged bleeding, it would be ceremonially unclean and would remain unclean for the duration of the bleeding. Uh, We're not going to dwell here on the rightness or the wrongness of the Jewish law. Uh, I'm not going to spend too long trying to explain it. We don't really have the time. Uh, And we're not preaching the Old Testament. Uh, And if that is something that confuses you or upsets you or even angers you, how an obviously ill woman can be deemed unclean, 
Do chat afterwards. But the significance of this uncleanness, I think, is that this woman is a social outcast. Her illness would have meant that she's lost her family, she's lost her friends, she's lost her work and her source of income, and to top it all off, she's denied access to the temple and deemed unacceptable before God by her religious authorities, presuming that she's Jewish. And Mark hammers this point home in verse 29. The last word of verse 29 is the word suffering. But it's the word that is elsewhere translated in the Bible as the word flogging. Twelve years of flogging. This woman, like Jairus, is anguished, desperate, and pleading. But unlike Jairus, she doesn't come and fall at Jesus' feet. Instead, she comes and she hopes for an unnoticed touch of his clothes. Now, we might think that this is great faith. She believes that even a touch would heal her. And it is, in a way. But it's also rather superstitious. Many people in this society thought that touching the clothes of important leaders... Uh, and religious figures would bring them healing or luck. And this woman is expressing a similar sort of superstition. She has no desire to actually meet the one who heals. Her shame and the trauma of her illness prevents her from wanting to. And, And so this, while it is faith, we learn that later, is a superstitious act that is a desperate last resort to get help after 12 years of suffering. Now, we might think that Jesus would carry on as normal. After all, he is in rather a rush at this point. But no, Mark tells us that he stops the crowd and demands to know who touched him. And even when the disciples point out rather obviously that he's in a crowd and lots of people would be touching him, he continues to search for this woman, scanning the faces, looking for who it was that touched his cloak. She wanted to touch and run, but she now realized that Jesus isn't going to let this one go. And she steps forward, full of fear and trembling. Remember, she doesn't know who Jesus is, really. I mean, she doesn't know what he's like. It's entirely possible that Jesus could strike her down and say, how dare you for touching me, you unclean woman. For Jewish law would render Jesus unclean now too. But Jesus' response, it's in verse uh, 34, is not one of rage or judgment, but full of tender compassion. And this is the first thing I want us to see. You've got it on your sheets uh, and it'll be on the screen as well. Uh, Across this story, Jesus is teaching us the depth of his love. He isn't repulsed by this unclean outcast, but instead he calls her daughter, confirming in words the healing that has already taken place in her body, blessing her and telling her to go in peace. How do you think this woman went away from this encounter with Jesus? Thrilled with her health, certainly. Upset that Jesus made her go public, maybe. 
But here is a man who compassionately answered her prayer when to everyone else she was an outcast. She came to Jesus for healing, but what she got was so much more than that because she met a human, a a real human being who felt that touch and, and spoke to her, drawing her out of the crowd because that's what she needed to come to see the compassion that compels the healing, not the clothes that passively cure. She has now learnt who Jesus is and what the God of love is like. Well, love is wonderful, of course. Makes the world go round. But it's no good Jesus being compassionate if he's incapable of actually doing anything. And in the fact that Jesus does actually heal this woman, we see here a display of his power too. And that's our second point. Uh, Across both of these stories, Jesus is teaching us the extent of his power. That's actually a bit of a theme in Mark. You'll have probably picked up on this if you've come to a few uh, of our sermons. Jesus has power to heal. He has power over the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, He has power over even nature, over which we can predict but have no power over. And here, Jesus is showing that he has power to heal as well. And here, he's challenging the superstition of this woman. It's not the clothes that healed her, but a powerful person whom she must meet and respond to. But it really is in the Jairus story that the extent of Jesus' power is truly revealed. Just pause with me for a moment and imagine the emotional turmoil that Jairus would have just been through. First, you've got absolute desperation that pulls him to his knees before Jesus. And then a flicker of hope as Jesus starts to follow him, which quickly turns to agitation and distress as Jesus seems to completely forget about him and help this unclean woman instead. Mark, who is our narrator here, powerfully dramatizes Jairus' plight by making no mention of him for ten whole verses. We can imagine Jairus jumping up and down, mutely crying out, Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you stopping the crowd? It's just a touch. There's no time to waste. And as Jesus stops to chat to this unclean outcast, apparently in no rush whatsoever, We imagine Jairus getting increasingly upset. Come on, Jesus! The miracle's done! Let's get going! Have you forgotten? My daughter, my little girl, is dying. And so, in verse 35, when this messenger arrives with the awful news, your daughter is dead, Jairus must have wanted to explode with rage. How dare you, Jesus, you fraud. Acting calm as if you've got all the time in the world. Now look what you've done. And surely, although Jairus has no time to respond, this rage would soon give way to an abyss of grief. As Jairus realizes all hope is lost. Your daughter is dead. Now, if Jesus was not God and simply a miracle worker or an eloquent teacher 
like people might have thought he was and people think he is, then this surely is a catastrophic failure for him. A momentous error of judgment. But Jesus is not just those things. And overhearing or or ignoring this conversation with Jairus, he doesn't allow him to explode with rage or crumple with grief. He simply says, don't be afraid, just believe. In verse 36. Notice how Jesus doesn't explain himself, doesn't give any apologies or offer much reassurance. He doesn't put his arm around Jairus and say, whoops, forgot about you, Jairus, but don't worry, I'm on my way. He just says, believe. In effect, Jesus is telling Jairus to trust in his power. Now, Jairus could reject Jesus at this point. He could say, she's dead, get lost. But he doesn't. He doesn't know what's about to happen, but he does know what's just happened. And he's just witnessed the tender compassion and the healing power of Jesus right before his very eyes. And he knows that when he's commanded to believe, he's commanded to believe not in an abstract thing, but in the Jesus he's just witnessed. He's told to trust Jesus against all the evidence to the contrary because his daughter's dead. But actually, he does have evidence because Jesus has just displayed his compassion and his healing power. And actually, what we're seeing is Jairus' desperate hope at the start of this story is being turned into a faith as he's forced to trust in Jesus. And so they move on. And as they get closer to Jairus's house, they come across the professional mourners. These were people who were hired uh, to mourn for people who had died. And Jesus informs them that this girl is sleeping just over the page. He's speaking metaphorically, of course. Her death is temporary to Jesus, but that is an outrageous thing for him to say. For no one ever has death ever been temporary. And as Jairus walks with Jesus here, he starts to twig what Jesus has got planned and it breaks the boundaries of his reality. Death is death, Jesus. And quite understandably, the professional mourners in verse 40 laugh. A sick, hollow laugh, I imagine. What kind of misguided fool thinks that death is just asleep? Well, Jesus gets rid of them. He puts them all out. And the narrative zooms right into this girl's bedroom, to this incredible scene where Jesus takes this little girl by the hand, the second time in this story that he's been rendered unclean by a touch, and he speaks to this lifeless corpse with unbelievable tenderness. Little girl. The Aramaic is really little lamb. Get up. What compassion Jesus displays in the way he speaks to this child here. And what audacity to command a dead corpse to arise as if it's only asleep. And what power Jesus displays when she does in fact stand up and start to walk around. 
In his portrait that Mark is painting, he's adding another layer here that we've not seen. We've seen power to heal, and we've seen power over nature, but here we're seeing that Jesus has power over the ultimate human enemy. No human has ever evaded, escaped, or outrun death. Despite that theme being the holy grail of myths and legends and literature, But Jesus has power over it with just a word or just a few words. And it's made explicitly clear to Jairus as the circumstances force him to wait for Jesus. Do you see that? Jesus is in command. Time is not a factor for him. Jairus came to Jesus for a miracle, but he got so much more. He got a resurrection. Now, incredibly, (laughs) Mark doesn't actually give us really the reactions of Jairus and his family, other than that they were completely astonished, understandably so. (laughs) And neither are we given the reaction of this woman who was healed. We don't know whether they became Christians, uh, started going to church, lived with Jesus as Lord. The spotlight consistently moves away from them and on to Jesus, onto this enigmatic figure of power and compassion. As Mark is asking this question, could this man be different? In May 1977, a series of interviews between British journalist David Frost and former US President Richard Nixon were broadcast in America. Uh, I don't really know the story, to be honest. But Richard Nixon is considered in the public image as a somewhat morally suspicious leader, (laughs) most often tied with the Watergate scandal. And there's one quote from these interviews as I was researching that stuck with me. Frost asks Nixon about the legality of the president's actions And in the context of American national security, Nixon replies, well, when the president does it, that means it's not illegal. (laughs) When the president does it, that means it's not illegal. Such a brazen admission of immorality from a former world leader kind of jars, doesn't it? We recoil from that a little. But there's something underlying those words that's even more worrying The idea that one who is in power might be so blinded by his power that they don't even consider legality or illegality a distinction. (laughs) That they think that that doesn't even apply. Well, who knows about Richard Nixon? I don't know. You could go away and research it and maybe you already have lots of opinions on that. But for for, for, for many, those comments evidence a sad reality. Wherever you've got power you've also got abuse of power, by definition. And it's not hard, really, to make a case. The Sepp Blatters, the Harvey Weinsteins, accusations against the church, even, the MP expenses scandal, all of this seems to confirm that power and goodness, power and compassion, power and love are polar opposites. To be in power means to be ruthless. To have power means to forget one's morals. To display power means to trample on those you have power over. But this story does something remarkable. 
in that Mark presents here a picture of Jesus with great power to heal and resurrect. Greater power than anyone we've ever witnessed if we take this story seriously. Greater than the Winston Churchills, Alexander the Greats and Abraham Lincolns of this world. But at the same time, the tenderest compassion to identify an anxious tug in the crowd and to hold the hand of a dead little girl. Could this man be different? But there's something even more remarkable going on here. We're, we're, we're scratching the surface. And you may, have, you may have noticed it if you were attentively listening. The actual word power is only referenced once in this story. And it's rather strange. Because in verse 30, if you just flick back, when this woman touches the cloak of Jesus... It doesn't say that Jesus displayed great power. In fact, it says that Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. Somehow, he feels a loss of power. And there's a host of questions here, surely. But the biggest is, why in a narrative of Jesus' healing power are we seeing limits to that power? a kind of exhaustibility. Why would Mark include such a, a description of weakness in his, bi- in his biography of Jesus? Well, I think it's clear from the fact that Jesus goes on to raise someone from the dead that Mark is not emphasizing the limitations of Jesus' power. It's not the case that Jesus has a kind of tank of power, and if he does too many miracles in one go, then he has to go and lie down and recharge. That wouldn't really fit with this story, and it wouldn't really fit with what we know of Jesus from the rest of the Bible. We, we simply don't really know what, it's, what it must be like what, for Jesus to lose power in this way. And what Mark seems to be doing is straining at language to give us a greater insight into the type of power and the type of love that Christ has. Because in this moment, Jesus, in his undoubtedly unlimited power, somehow experiences a loss of power. In his moment of compassion for this woman, he becomes weak in order for this woman to be healed by his power. This is surely something of a mystery. I can't fully articulate this in language. But what we are seeing here is that in Jesus, power and weakness are not opposed. And neither, therefore, is Jesus' power and his love opposed. He's infinitely loving and inexhaustibly powerful. We are seeing how this man might just be different to all the other world leaders who have been and gone on our stage. The woman saw how Jesus was different. He felt her touch in a busy crowd, wasn't repulsed by that touch, and spoke with kindness when no one else did. And Jairus saw how Jesus was different as he took his daughter by the hand and with a word dealt with death. Mark's portrait here is gaining focus. 
And there's a breathlessness to his narrative as he races through these descriptions of his Lord. And they're all building to the climax, to the greatest display of power and of love. And then we get the cross. The crucifixion of Jesus is surely the ultimate failure. Yes, he was a great teacher. Yes, he was a wonderful healer, but he was finally stopped by the mighty Roman Empire and his Jewish enemies. The cross, like with any other human execution, is, is, is Jesus at his weakest. Naked, broken, flogged. And yet, in these climactic moments, it is also Jesus with his greatest power. Think about this for a moment. Jesus has power over death, right? That's my hypothesis, if you like. <laughs> and he raised this 12-year-old girl to display it. But she's not alive now. Presumably she grew up, lived her life, got sick, and then died. And as did this woman. Jesus' power was pretty impressive, wasn't it? But it's still limited if she died eventually. What does power over death even mean? Well, death in the Bible always means two different things. It's referring to our physical deaths, of course. But physical death in the Bible is always a picture of spiritual death, which refers really to being cut off from God. The reason death exists in the world, according to the Bible, is because human beings have wronged God and lived lives apart from God. That's what the Bible calls sin. And death, both physical and spiritual, is the wages of sin. That is not to say that every individual death it is the direct result of individual human sin. But death as an overwhelming force in human existence is as a result of human rebellion towards God. But the Bible teaches that Jesus did not sin. And therefore, he should not have died. And so when he did willingly die, he took the punishment that we deserve. On the cross, Jesus was cut off from God, a physical and a spiritual death, the punishment that we deserve for our rebellion. And importantly, Jesus didn't stay dead. The power that he displayed in the resurrection of this young girl is a foretaste of his own resurrection in which death is truly defeated and revealed to have no power over Jesus, for he was sinless. And when a human being like me and you trust in Jesus, the Bible teaches that his death becomes our death, and his resurrection becomes our resurrection. Death has no power for the Christian, for it has been defeated on the cross. Of course, humans still physically die, as this remains a symbol of our fallen world. But spiritual death has no power. This story then, with its call to faith in Jesus' healing power, 
It is not just a nice picture of, of some miracles that Jesus did, but an illustration of what Jesus can do for us. When we believe in him, as Jairus and this woman did, we are healed and restored to a relationship with God. Why, why would Jesus do all this? Why would he come from heaven and live a sinless life and then die the death of a sinner cut off from his father? Well, the answer from this story, aside from what the answer to the rest of the Bible says, it is obvious. Why did he call this unclean outcast daughter? Why did he take this dead little girl's hand and call her lamb? Because our God is not just a God of power, he's a God of love. Sometimes you hear people say, and maybe this is something that you yourself say, look at all the suffering in the world. This proves that if God is real, then he's either unable to deal with it, i.e. he's not powerful, or he doesn't want to, i.e. he's not loving. Now, suffering is hard, and we don't presume in this church to have all the answers, neat little answers. You may have an intensity of suffering that can't be fully answered here. But with the cross, we have the ultimate display of power and love. Because our God, out of compassion for us, while we were still rebelling against him, came to this earth and willingly lost power became weak in order to restore us to him. Isn't that amazing? What this woman experienced in this story was healing power, but it wasn't a magic power, like a, like a rabbit's foot or a four-leaf clover. It wasn't a superstitious power, but it was a power connected to a person, a real person who loved her deeply, who felt that touch, who wanted to know her, and had power to heal her. She experienced God's love for his people, God's relational love firsthand, and his power to save them. And likewise, what Jairus experienced here was a power way more than he was expecting. Resurrection power, not just healing power. Jairus saw a glimpse of the power that Jesus held over death to save the whole world because of his compassion. Are you seeing how those two things go together? Well, we don't dwell on either of these characters' responses, as we said in this story. But there is a way to respond from, from this story, and it is the word faith. The woman is commended for her faith, and it is that which healed her. And Jairus is commanded to have faith, and he does so. And so in this story, the final thing I want us to see is that Jesus is teaching the call of faith. Faith can be defined in a multitude of ways, can't it? And sometimes we have sermons where we describe and think about what faith is. But in this story, faith is simple. Look at what Jesus says in verse 36. Don't be afraid, just believe. Faith is not complex. In this story, do you believe who Jesus is, who he says he is, and can do what he says he can do? 
If you believe that, you have faith. Faith is not intelligence. It's not knowing all the answers. It's not being really strong in the face of adversity. It's not even being theologically accurate. This woman's faith was misguided at best. And Jairus' faith was a desperate, anguished, last resort sort of faith. But they both believed that Jesus could heal. And that belief is a saving belief. Friends, the same call that Jesus gave Jairus applies to us today. Don't be afraid, just believe. We don't know everything. We don't know the futures, but we are called to believe that this man is different. To believe that he really has the power to heal and power over death and power to save us from our deepest problem, being cut off from our maker. And to believe that he really is good, full of love and compassion, that he loved us so much that even in our rebellion, he faced the cross to save us. And even though there is suffering in our world, he is renewing this broken, suffering world. Believe. Now, now there will be undoubtedly lots of different people (laughs) listening to this today and online this week. Just as there will have been many people in the crowd that day watching You may already believe in Jesus and have believed for a long time or a short time. Keep on believing. Be reminded of the Jesus in whom you trust. And remember, when all hope appears lost, as it does for Jairus, Jesus is still in control. Remember that when suffering piles around, when all external evidence points to God either being impotent or capricious, Jesus still has the whole world in his hands and you are called to trust in him. It may be, though, that you do not believe. You may have once believed, but for whatever reason find it hard to believe now. Or you may be seeking belief, seeing Jesus for the first time, but don't quite know how it all works. Or you may be hardened to belief, skeptical, full of questions. I haven't the space to deal with every individual circumstance, of course. And I hope that our church is a place where you feel comfortable wherever you are at with this, with this man. But I urge you to ask yourself, could this man be different? Mark is painting a portrait of a man with immense power and authority, surely. And that surely demands our attention, even on its own. But then it is combined with a deep compassion and a tenderness for those under his power. A rare combination to be found nowhere else in this world. This passage calls you to believe in who Jesus says he is and what he says he can do heal you in this broken, death-controlled world. Let me pray for us now. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not a God who really, really wants to help us, but some things are just out of your control. And we thank you that you are not a God who's got unlimited power but just really doesn't like us that much. Lord, we thank you that when Jesus came to this earth, what he showed 
was that he was a man of unlimited love and inexhaustible power. And we thank you that that is displayed in this story, that the way Jesus feels the touch in the crowd, that the way Jesus holds the hand of this girl displays his love and displays his power. But we thank you that this story is a foretaste as well, a picture of what Jesus did on the cross. We thank you that he gave up heaven to come to this earth, not because he had to, but because he loves the people of this earth, that he loves us, that he loves me and you. Lord, we thank you that Jesus came to do that. And we pray that we would see this Jesus and respond to him in the way that we are called to respond. For Jesus' sake, amen.